0: In its own way, I think running probably has done more for the women's movement than almost any other force.
1: We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun.
0: Becky well placed! Come on, Jake.
1: Come on, Jake. It has been my pleasure and my honor to represent you all. (laughs) Some wise person said, a picture is worth a thousand words. I have to ask, this is my opening question. Is the iconic picture hung up in your house anywhere? Is it on your phone? Like, are you, is it, yeah, is it around you?
0: Yes, but it's a really old, beat up, uh, uh, grayish one.
1: Maybe that's for your average picture. What about with famous pictures? Like a picture that's in Time's 100 photos that changed the world. How many words is that worth?
0: And I have really beautiful ones of it. Why I haven't mounted and framed those instead? Perhaps because I had this one a long time ago and I had matted and framed it for my parents and signed it to them. Mm. And then when they passed away, it was on their wall and I took it down and I put it on my wall.
1: Because there's the story behind the photographer. There's a really
0: interesting story behind it. And I know we have limited time, but let me tell you this story because the photograph probably is what made me quote-unquote famous. Um, it, not the incident itself, because incidents often fade into history um, because people need the visual. But the photograph was taken by a photographer named Harry Trask, and he worked for the Boston Herald Traveler. He was on the press uh, truck that morning. It was very grumpy because the weather was really freezing, mm-hmm. cold, sleeting, and um, he was going to have to sit there for 26 miles. And um, all the good cameras had been taken uh, out of the press room by the guys who were going to Fenway to come to the baseball game, which was, of course, subsequently canceled. But he didn't have a long lens. And so when the incident happened where Jock Seppel jumped off the bus, ran down the street and attacked me, Harry knew he couldn't get it from the back of the truck. And the truck had stopped. So he jumped off the bus and moved in very close and cranked off three pictures. Boom, boom, boom. And then the, the bus left. <laughs> his truck left. And so he said he didn't care. He went and got a taxi, took it back to the offices of the Herald Traveler, ran into the dark room, developed his pictures, saw these three incredible ones in a row, and they printed it on the front page of the paper boom, 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 one, two, three. So his pictures were out on the wire even before I was halfway through mm-hmm. the race and into the first editions of the newspaper. So he, he was unbelievable. It was, made him incredibly famous. But he didn't get any kind of award for it, which is really interesting because he had won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years before for uh, the sinking of the Andrea Doria. and he, But he never won a Pulitzer for this one. And in the fullness of time, this picture probably has become much more famous.
1: And then there's the story of, well, the picture's secondary subjects. And
0: Actually, for a number of years, it was my boyfriend who hit the official and knocked him out of the way, who became the hero. If you look at all the captions of that photo, it says, Chivalry is not dead. Girlfriend saved by boyfriend. And he, 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 was, he was handy, but he wasn't the main event. <laughs> <laughs> the main event was what I did.
1: And then there is the main character. There's her story. Kathy Switzer's story. So it's an iconic photo, but I know a lot of you guys might have been like, Hannah, what is this picture? I don't know what you're talking about. You're being so vague. Kathy Switzer will forever be remembered as the first woman to run the Boston Marathon as a numbered entrant. The photo, or photos I am referring to here, were snapped on April 19th, 1967. It was at around mile four of Switzer's run. And the quote incident referred to in the now famous photos unfolded when marathon race official Jock Semple spotted this lone maverick woman going about her marathon and lunged at her to try to remove her bib number. Thomas Miller, who was running alongside Switzer, then shoved the angry Semple out of the way as the official tried to lay hands on his girlfriend. Switzer would go on to complete the race. And the pictures crossed the finish line before Switzer did. They were splashed in newspapers across the country. The words the picture spoke were understood one way in the moment, more or less.
0: People um, at the time didn't think what I did was heroic. Many people thought that I was um, intruding, I was out of place, I was doing something inappropriate.
1: But the meaning changed over time.
0: We, we also have to remember, Hannah, we have moved into now a time, uh, I call it the second women's liberation movement, a time of huge empowerment, um, a lot of negativity, but also important negativity with Me Too, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and she said, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and that picture really speaks to those voices.
1: A symbol of women's empowerment, fearlessness in the face of injustice, the fight for equality, That's what the history-making moment in these history-making pictures have come to represent. And to think that in the very beginning, the history-making runner, who made it all happen, kind of treated running as more of an afterthought. This was back in high school, after taking some advice from her dad.
0: He said, you should go play on that new field hockey team you have. And how lucky I am that our high school had this new team. Um, And he said, and you should run a mile a day and you'll be the best player.
1: The field hockey part didn't quite stick.
0: I went out and I started running, and I felt that it was giving me all kinds of magic and superpower, because every time I'd come in from running the mile, I would feel like I could do anything. I didn't tell anybody about it, and I I kept running more and more and more, and pretty soon I was running three miles a day. And Honestly, i tell you, I felt invincible, and that was such a powerful way for a young girl to feel.
1: That young girl went on to college, first to a small school called Lynchburg. But then to Syracuse University, which was a move for her future, a move for her non-running self.
0: I realized um, that there wasn't going to be any running for me or sports for me after I got out of college. So I transferred to Syracuse so I could study journalism because I wanted to write sports. So I felt if I could stay close to the thing I love professionally, it would be as good as um, playing on a team. And the Olympics, the longest event in the Olympic Games was, it was still 400 meters. And so it was, um, (laughs) that wasn't for me. I really wanted to run long and that didn't exist. It didn't occur to me to create it yet, you know?
1: It was at Syracuse that Switzer came to think, hey, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. Yeah, it was really that dramatic.
0: At Syracuse, when I got there, there were no women's sports whatsoever, so I went and asked if I could run on the men's team. The coach said, no, not officially, but you can come train with us, and that's where I met the volunteer assistant coach, a guy named Arnie Briggs.
1: This guy Briggs would accompany Switzer on her runs, and he loved, loved to tell stories of the Boston Marathon.
0: One night, I was really cranky on the run, and we were in a blizzard, and I, it was because of Syracuse. It's just ferociously cold. and I just kind of lost my temper. I was really snippy. And I said, oh, let's just quit talking about the damn Boston Marathon and run it. And he said, but a woman can't run Mm -hmm. a marathon.
1: I truly don't know how many times in human history a man said a woman can't do something. And then to prove a point, a woman goes and does a badass thing. I feel like it really is a lot of times. Briggs and Switzer are going back and forth arguing about whether it's feasible for a woman to run a marathon
0: Finally, he really snapped back at me and he said, I'll tell you what, he said, if you showed it to me, I would believe it.
1: So the stage was set. Switzer started training. Arnie Briggs helped to coach her. When it came to registration, there was nothing in the Boston Marathon rulebook that said anything about gender. She filled out an entry form, attached the $3 cash entry fee, along with a fitness certificate from Syracuse University because... Unlike today, the marathon did not require qualifying times then. Before sending it all in, she signed the form with the name K.B. Switzer. She kept her plans pretty hush-hush.
0: I am the kind of person who almost never, never puts out a goal publicly Mm. and says I'm going to do something.
1: She might have a legend's constitution, but she has insecurities like the rest of us. Um, I didn't tell
0: anybody... But my roommates, because I had three (laughs) roommates, we shared a big flat in in Syracuse. And I because they were wondering why I was packing a suitcase and going out of town. So I told them and I said, but please, you can't tell anybody (laughs) until noon tomorrow. (laughs) And they just kind of smoked their cigarettes and said, cool. When I got to Boston, I called my parents Um, and I thought uh, I'd better call them. And so about 10 o'clock at night before I called my parents.
1: She also told a professor because she had an exam that day. And she told that boyfriend I mentioned before, Tom Miller. He was pretty upset about the whole thing, and after getting into an argument, he insisted he run with her. On race day, Arnie Briggs picked up the envelope from the officials, which contained Switzer's bib number. Next to the number 261 was the name K. Switzer. She was ready to run.
0: She had on a really sexy top and shorts so that was wanting to show up, but the weather changed. That played into my favor. If it had been a warm day and I'd been in shorts and a t-shirt, probably everybody would have noticed me. The guys all knew I was right. a woman. Uh, but the officials didn't, it didn't tell. So, I, But I wasn't hiding. I wasn't hiding, but I wasn't standing up on a soapbox and beating my chest saying, I'm a girl, I'm here. Mm-hmm.
1: Switzer ran the race and finished it, much to Jock Semple's dismay. Obviously, that is the bite-sized version of all that went down For all the details of training, pre-race stories, and a look inside the mind and heart of Switzer on that day, April 19th, 1967, I encourage you to go to katharineswitzer.com and click on The Real Story. That moment has been retold and analyzed via books, ESPN documentaries, and word of mouth. And it will continue to be that way, because it was that impactful and significant. But back in 1967, the life that lived that moment moved on, as lives do, in the crazy way the world keeps on turning, whether you like it or not. Switzer finished her last year of undergrad while also working, while also running.
0: And I had to keep this boarding house room place clean as well, so I was scrubbing floors, and, and I remember... Why am I scrubbing these floors when, you know, you know a few, few months ago I was on The
1: Tonight Show? <laughs> and then, as many retired student-athletes are all too familiar with, you graduate, and that sport you once dedicated so much time to falls to the wayside.
0: Finished the degree, uh, got married, got a job.
1: But it wasn't long before she missed competitive running, and things were happening in the world of running while she was out of it
0: they put a four-hour limit on the Boston Marathon, so nobody who could run, uh, you had to run under four hours to, mm-hmm. to go to Boston. Um, so I decided, okay, you know, it's time now to determine whether I'm really going to be an athlete, and take this seriously, really seriously, or not. And so I started training.
1: She was back. Switzer ran under four hours in 1970. In 1972, by the way, women were officially allowed to compete in the Boston Marathon. So something actually said it in the rule book now. She won the New York City Marathon in 1974, placed in second at Boston in 1975. Beyond the Hall of Fame inductions and the honors, breaking the barriers she did as a runner led to something bigger than sport.
0: It also gave me the inspiration more than anything else to turn my attention now really to creating opportunities for women because again if i could do that there was so much talent that existed out there not that every woman should be or try to be a world-class athlete but to let her know that she could do much more than she ever believed and now we see that running for women has become a social revolution you know there are millions of these millions of women who are running getting up at four in the morning, organizing their lives around that 20 minutes they can get in the morning or that two hours on Sunday afternoon. They're not running to be great athletes for the most part. Almost none of them are, are wanting to be Olympians. And they're running because it gives them a sense of self and empowerment and strength and fearlessness. That's, that's what they're doing. And it's changing society. Mm-hmm. In its own way, I think running probably has done more for the women's movement than almost any other force. And you look at places that are impoverished, Kenya, Ethiopia, etc. You're looking at those women who are unbelievably third-class citizens. The way the women are treated and live in some of these societies is beyond the imagination of almost any American. And running has given them prestige, power, money, and they have in their villages they are um, esteemed. They're building schools, they're sanitizing water, they're inoculating kids, they're changing the fabric of society. And um, now I'm taking great, great heart about the women in the Mideast who are overcoming many, many uh, centuries of cultural and social and religious repression through running. And it's starting in their own heart, which is the most important thing. So I am very, very passionate, as you can tell, about uh, what we're doing with women's running.
1: Switzer has been advocating for running as a vehicle towards women's empowerment and women's rights for decades now. She's written two books, she travels around the world as a speaker, and she has established an organization based on the number 261.
0: And it has gone on to become this sort of number meaning
1: fearlessness. The bib number that Jock Semple tried to rip off Switzer that day.
0: We have incorporated that number into a nonprofit, which is reaching out by creating clubs and community programs, educational programs, um, but mostly meet runs and clubs in different communities around the world to give women the opportunity and the empowerment to take that first step. You know, I I say that that we think about women who are suppressed and and do not have an opportunity and we think, oh, she's someplace in North Africa or Saudi and she's under a burqa anyway or something. Uh, when the reality is that the fearful woman might be your next-door neighbor. And she's the woman who says, "Uh, I could never do that. Uh, I can't run. Uh, I'm too big. I'm too slow. I'm too old.
1: 261 fearless groups and clubs are currently operating in 11 countries and growing. Running is the world's most accessible sport. And running, endurance running in particular, reaches across gender in this fascinating way.
0: It's, it's really quite exciting to think what we can also do, is, do as men and women together, not just men's sport, not just women's sports, but maybe a combined activity uh, where we are a team together.
1: I always think back to school how in cross country, boys and girls practice together so much. It's these qualities that give running so much power and potential to incite widespread change in the ways Switzer describes. Another amazing quality about running it's inherent longevity. You can keep competitively running way past, way past what's considered athletic prime. There's a 90 plus age group for competitive running. So here is your run along plot twist. Switzer is not a retired athlete.
0: I'll tell you the happiest day in my life. <laughs> happiest day in my life was when I finished the Boston Marathon again right. in 2017
1: on my 50th anniversary. It's amazing. Of running. She finished that 50th anniversary event almost three years ago. She also finished the NYC Marathon that same year. As she was on the phone with me from New Zealand, where she lives part-time with her husband, competitive runner Roger Robinson, she's still training for upcoming marathons in Tokyo and Chicago. Episode 33 does not feature a retired athlete. But, but... Running and athletic retirement seem to be, I'll say, they seem to be bed buddies. They seem to be connected in some way. Running is obviously a major component of so many sports. It's a part of so many athletes' training programs for years and years. It really tends to be a sport, hobby, exercise that so many athletes who retired from other sports decide to throw themselves into in one way or another. Think about... How many of your former athlete friends have run marathons? So I'll put forth this question. What is the relationship between running and retirement? What is the relationship between running and inflection points moving from one phase of life to the next?
0: With, with running, first of all, it's never too late to start. And, and therefore you're still improving. Um, but we're all improving within our age groups. So when we change into the next age group, we start reevaluating where we are and we measure our times against those things. So it's, it's a wonderful way to age.
1: Switzer herself, at 73, training every day, is an expert in this. She also wrote a book touching on this topic called Running and Walking for Women Over 40. Not to mention, she's living with another runner who has also embraced running's incredible longevity.
0: He's 80 and has two replaced knees. So each knee is artificial. And he is up again now to an hour and a half of steady state running, no stopping,
1: and is running, you know, he's running like 27 minutes for 5Ks. Please let me be one-fifth as athletic and healthy as these two in 50 years. Aging, though, if we really boil it down, means transition. It, it can mean loss. It can mean not being able to do things the way you once could. And that can be pretty difficult for athletes when it comes to their sport.
0: At first, he kind of felt bad because he was such a world-class runner. So naturally, when... when... You know, you, you say, I'm proud of running 27 minutes for five Ks. Well, you got to compare that to, you know, like running 13 something <laughs> for, five, for five Ks when you're in your prime, but you can't, you don't compare that. What you do is you do a mind shift and say, Hey, you know, I'm grateful for being here and I'm going to do the best I can within that, within that range. So running is amazing that way. The football player retires and gets depressed. The runner gets depressed for a minute and then can't wait for the next age group. I think runners, uh, more than anybody else, have been revolutionizing what it is to retire.
1: With running, unless self-imposed, there isn't this abrupt end to your sport. There are like these little spurts of the sport as you experienced it coming to a close, and you might be feeling like you've lost your mojo, but then you're back on the horse for the next age group. In many ways, Kathy Switzer's life as competitive runner stands as an ideal type, An example of how most of us hope to undergo loss of experiences we love. The experiences never really go away. They can't and shouldn't because they are so central to our stories as athletes and beyond. How we engage with the experience. The space we allow them to take up in our lives. That's what changes. Thank you to Kathy Switzer for coming on to the podcast. And thank you for listening. If you want to go see those famous pictures from Boston in 1967, or if you want to go learn more about 261 Fearless, check out runalongpodcast.com. Hope to see you next time.